If you have your Bibles, find uh, Ruth chapter 4 with me. You know, um, I'm one of four boys, and um, growing up, my dad believed in this thing called corporal punishment. To, to some of y'all's shock and astonishment, I, I went to public schools in time when they still believed in that, and uh, um, they administered it to me quite a few times. Um, well, my dad had this thing where if, if one person did something, everybody got it. And uh, he always started with the oldest and worked his way down, which I was thankful for because I was the youngest. And uh, my dad was, a, was overweight like me, and he smoked like a freight train, so he would usually be out of a lot of energy by the time he got to me. Well, I think it was around 1975, 76, we got a new-to-us couch, and it was a pretty, pretty awesome couch. Uh, it really worked against naps because it was one of those couches that if you fell asleep on, when you woke up, it'd peel off a layer of skin. Anybody remember those? You could not go to sleep with bare skin on those couches. It, it, would, it would hurt you. Well, Daddy, Daddy was finished with number one. He was starting on number two, and I had a bright idea. Y'all going to have to use your imagination for this part. I was at that point still skinny enough that I could get under that couch. So I just hit the deck and scooted under that couch. And I said, this is a plan, man. He'll, you know, this is going to work. Well, this weird thing happened. My daddy suddenly grew a third arm when it was my turn to get my butt whipped. Here's how I know. Because with one hand, he was holding his belt. With the other hand, he lifted up that couch, and a third hand came from somewhere and pulled me out from under it. And he tore my behind up. Later on, my brother, my oldest brother, says, what did you think you was doing? I said, I was sort of hoping by the time he got to me, he would forget I was born. It didn't work. <laughs> he remembered he had a fourth son. And he remembered it strongly. That's one of the few occasions when we would like to forget we were born and we would like other people to forget we're born. Truth be known, truth be known, we want to be seen, every single one of us. And not just seen, we want people to know who we are. We want people to care about our well-being, the things that interest us. And it can be really hurtful and damaging when you don't feel seen. Take, for example, in a workplace. If you feel like you go into work every day and do your job and nobody notices, what do you usually want to do? Quit. Find another job. If you're in a relationship and it doesn't seem like that person notices you as much as you notice them, that's usually some trouble in a relationship, isn't it? There's nothing, in my humble opinion, as lonely and hurtful as feeling like God doesn't see you anymore. Nothing. I remember in my personal story, I had been under conviction for 17 and a half years. I mean, I remember it like yesterday. And the very night that I got some notion that God would even take the conviction away if I didn't turn to him was the thing that finally caused me to turn to God. I at least want to know God was so close that I felt miserable. I don't know if anybody in here can relate to that. I just didn't want him to go away. I'm okay if you're here and I feel terrible about my sin, but when I got that notion in my mind that he might go away and I wouldn't even feel terrible anymore, that's like the worst thing in the world. Well, I think Naomi could relate to us oh so well. She'd lost her husband. She had lost her boys. She was left with these two daughters-in-law that she seemed to care about. She cared about them so much that she even offered them a worldly solution to the problem. Go back home to your people and Try to get you a husband and work things out in your life. And 
well, you know, the one daughter-in-law, Oprah Winfrey, she runs back to Moab, and Ruth, she sticks in there. And you remember what she said. Ruth says, don't, don't, don't tell me anymore to run away from you. Wherever you go, that's where I'm going. Wherever you stop, that's where I'll be stopped. Whoever your people are, they'll be my people. Your God is my God. Where they bury you, they might as well lay me in the ground right beside you. And Naomi says, well, the scripture says, and Naomi didn't try to convince her anymore. Naomi arrives in her hometown, and they say, and it's like this. Hey, there's Miss Pleasant. She says, don't you call me that. Call me Miss Bitter. She felt like this terrible hand had been dealt to her, and God himself had wronged her. That God had gone past ignoring her and that he had committed some wrong against her. You know that part of the story. You know the part of the story where they begin to get some hints that God is still seeing them. That first little hint is that Ruth just won't quit. And she goes out to glean and, you know, this is how the flesh states it. She happened to land in Boaz's field. You and I know that's just how the flesh sees it. Next thing you know, Naomi's hatching this very brilliant, strange, God-given plan for Ruth to submit herself to Boaz as a proposal. Boaz accepts it. And then last week, there's an even seemingly nuttier plan where he goes down to the city gate. Could y'all imagine standing at city limits hoping that somebody goes home with a shoe? What kind of way is it that to do a deal? But it works. And then tonight, we see the happy couple do more than fade off into the sunset. They go off into the eternity of nothing but light. Join me in Ruth chapter 4 and verse number 13 through the end of the chapter so we can see how this beautiful love story plays out. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, My son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Father, as we open your word, Open it to us, Father. Help us see beyond the story. Help us see beyond the human romance, which is worthy of our attention, and to see the divine romance of how you have wooed and pursued, how you have paid and how you have purchased, how you have loved and how you're sustaining your bride. And help us to see with great anticipation the church's great wedding day and to live in eager expectation. In Jesus we pray, amen and amen. I have five points, and I want to go ahead and warn you, if you happen to be a guest, I'll go through these first four so fast, you'll be like, man, 
It's going to be short. <laughs> Just wait till I get to number five, and then we'll settle in. This is really a story of provision, of how God provides. Tony Marita, a pastor in the Raleigh area, boiled it down to this simple st statement. He says, the two great needs of Ruth are fertility and food. I remember reading that a few weeks ago, and I, I went, yeah, isn't that everybody? <laughs> fertility and food. The statement struck me, but it's just the truth. You have these childless women in a culture where a childless woman was in grave danger. In our family, for example, we're, we're one of those kind of families where you stay with your kinfolk. And I'll never forget, for my, my mom, she has three sisters, and they had this thing where they were taking care of their mom, and her dementia got so bad that she needed 24-hour care, and it just, it just rocked their world to trust somebody else with her care. It was heartbreaking and difficult. But none of us could, you know, no, no, no single unit of the family could, could watch her 24-7 and feel safe about it. And she entered into a great place. We were able to visit a lot. But in this culture, there, there were no Cambridge Hills, no Roxborough Assisted Living, no, no, you know, wherever, Canterbury, uh, Maple View. There were, there were none of these places. There was just the family. Have you thought about that any during this story? If, Na if Naomi doesn't have sons and daughters-in-laws and granddaughters and grandchildren to care for her, her old age is of utter despair, hoping against hope that she'll stay useful and die suddenly. Her story of despair goes beyond even those three grave sites. Her heart is anchored in the past, and her misery seems to be anchored in the future. No wonder Naomi feels like all hope is lost. But God sees her, and he sees this woman who has joined her lot with Naomi. She sees Ruth. And what's interesting is when Naomi says to Ruth, shouldn't I try to get some security for you? You know what she's saying? I've come to learn. I've got security in you. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm starting to wonder, will you be okay? It's touching. It's Ruth, you're going to take care of me. Girl, I've seen it. You're out here gleaning, being honorable. I'll be okay because of you. But I'm starting to really get worried whether you'll be okay, who you'll have. And in this, we see the marvelous provision of God that reaches all the way to the seat you're sitting in. Let's take a moment and unfold that provision. First, God provides food. To go forward, we got to go back just a little bit. In Ruth chapter 1 and verse number 6, we, we read this. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. You remember why they left their native land? It was a, it was a, it was a famine, and they didn't trust God. It's, it's point blank that simple. They couldn't see how to trust God, it seems, and they left, and they went somewhere where they could get grub. Everywhere we go, everywhere we go, and, you know, our families traveled all over the United States. We'll be somewhere, and if there is not a grocery store immediately present, my wife will say, where do these people go to the grocery store? And when we go out west, that's a legitimate question, but if you east of the Mississippi, there's a grocery store every 30 minutes. Kara doesn't believe it. She always has the question, where do these people go to the grocery store? She's asked me so many times, we'll be somewhere, and I'll go, there's a town nearby. I don't even wait for the question. 
I just started paying attention to the green signs. You say, you see that? So I said, plus, honey, now, now, now everyone is saved. If there's not a grocery store, there's a Dollar General and a Family Dollar every 18 feet. This was God heard, cares, compassion, and began answering America's problems with Dollar Generals. Can you, can you relate to their story? Have you, have you ever taken your fate into your hand in ways that didn't work out so well? I, I can tell you, I can tell you that my teenage years epitomized the bad country song, you know. I, I, wanted, I wanted somebody to like me so much that I would do any dumb thing to make people laugh, and a lot of times it was really dumb things. I wanted somebody to love me so much that uh, I, offered, I often entered into really stupid relationships that I went too far in too fast because I just wanted to be loved. Over and over again, it was a good root for the bad method. Naomi and his family just wanted to eat. They were born. Like you were saying, Andrew, like, it's not just when you're bad. You're, you're designed to need God. You're designed to eat, right? Did you know that? It's just sometimes our most basic needs, we begin to stop trusting God in them. It's like, I know I'm going to trust God for heaven, but <clears throat> earth, that's on me. I love that in this story, they get to a place where their hearts are broke and food doesn't even matter as much, and now it's back home, so they go. How did the, how did the famine end? God provided food. Secondly, God provides a child. You, you saw in this story, Boaz and Ruth getting married, and they have a child. Did you, did you notice, did you happen to notice in verse 13, it says, and God God, and the Lord gave her conception. Anybody notice? It's the same phrase as when he gave food. It was the Lord done something that only the Lord could do. The Lord has provided. And I want to I take an aside right here. I want to take an aside, give a, a bonus sermon for, for somebody who, who, who needs this kind of encouragement or inspiration or maybe even this challenge. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it says God knitted him together in his mother's womb. Isn't that pretty cool? What did God use? God used biology, but God did it. Every single child is from the Lord. Every single child. Every single child. From conception. Who gives Ruth and Boaz his child? The Lord. The Lord. That's something, guys, that has become radically, radically forgotten in our culture. You know who that child belongs to? The, mo the, the mom? Not really. She's stewarding. The child is the Lord's. So I don't want to pull my punches, and I don't want to seem to be obscure. It's not just one person's body. It is that child's body that belongs to the Lord that we're dealing with in hateful ways in our time. And if we don't get that lesson right, our culture is going to continue to just separate and divide from the Lord in a million different ways. In this case, this child is provided by the Lord, and it's a miracle kid, much like many miracle kids in the Bible. Genesis 21, Sarah has Isaac when she's super old. Now, I, I thought about this before I put it in my notes. Is there anybody in here 86 or above? Anybody? I don't think so. Anybody? About 76. Oh, look. You, are you 76, Joe? 81, Joe. 
Could you imagine you and Viv having a baby today? In nominee patri, in Philly, in something. I mean, could you imagine? That was a miracle. That was a miracle. I mean, and, and ladies, I mean having a child at 86. Having. In Genesis 25, you get Rebecca, who's waited, 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 and she gets Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 29 and 30, you got the story of Rachel, who's watched her, her sister Leah have child after child after child, and she finally has Joseph, and then much later, Benjamin. First Samuel 1, you get poor Hannah, who's in a similar situation. And she, she goes and prays to the Lord and says, listen, if you'll give me a child, I'll give him right back to you. Funny thing is, I've always said that's a funny thing to say to God. It's already his. But that was the mom saying, I'll consciously let go. <laughs> that's difficult. And she has Samuel. Then you go all the way into the New Testament, Luke. Chapter 1, Elizabeth, she has John the Baptist. This story is really amazing, but it's not just amazing that a woman who hadn't had a child, who didn't have security, and now has a child and has security. It's that the Lord is answering a lot of issues very personally. So God provides a boy. Thirdly, God provides a king. Say, so preacher, where do you get that? Just look down into verse 17. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. His father was Jesse and his, the father of David. And you remember that story, don't you? That's a, that's a crazy story, story of King David. The people, their first ever king was Samuel. Does anybody here remember how they chose Samuel? Anybody? Hmm? I mean, thank you. Thank you, Saul. Thank you. Anybody remember how they chose Saul? I promise you, I thought y'all were saying salt. I was like, no, they didn't use salt. Yeah, he's big. In this case, Casey would be our king. You're going to die. I'm coming for you. And if we lay down, I'll be the tallest. <laughs> that took a while for y'all, didn't it? Welcome to the show. They chose Saul. Saul didn't do what was right in the Lord's sight. The Lord begins to choose a king for the people. He sends the prophet Samuel, the prophet priest Samuel, down to David's daddy's house, Jesse. Jesse's got these six boys up there having a barbecue. He says, what about this boy? Starts with the oldest. No. This boy, 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 no. No more left. Samuel asked a question. Do you have any more? Well, we got this, this one old little nasty farm boy named Shannon Allen. If y'all just go down there and get him, he's ruddy. He's been out in the field. If you say Shannon's name, he turns ruddy. I was, <laughs> he gets red real quick. Look at him over there. <laughs> but it was like that. And what's God do? He does the unsuspecting thing. He chooses the seven sons. Because God provides. God provided the lineage. God provided the calling. God provided the king. And this story is part of that process. Fourthly, God provides the king. If you look in the lattermost part of this passage, and then we're going to go to Matthew 1 in just a moment, you get this genealogy. And I tell you, people who tell me, you know, I just can't do all those begats, I go, oh, boy. Oh, boy. You need to do those begats. 
What that is is a steamer trunk full of stories. Every single one of those lists are just an incredible story. Every one of them. And look at this one. They go from Perez, who is a crazy story. If you know the story of Perez, we're not going to take time to tell it, but look it up. It is crazy. Any, any, any lady who gets an idea like Perez's mama got, they need Jesus. Anyway. Perez, Father Hezron, all the way down to David. They take the list to David. And, and to the reader who didn't know the story beforehand, this, this is a wild story. What, 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 what? The story of this, this, this widow Naomi and this foreign woman Ruth, this is about David. What? It would have been mind-boggling to watch it unfold for a person that didn't know Ruth was David's great-grandmother. Aha, uh -huh. but it's even more mind-boggling if you'll take it to the next step. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Read it together with me, church. The son of David, the son of Abraham. The Holy Spirit led Matthew to come out swinging. My man was Mike Tyson, 86. He's knocking people out with these two statements right here. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, he says, I'm going to make from you a nation of my choice and many nations. The people of the whole world will be blessed through you. And he says to David, and someone from your line will stay on the throne, how long? Forever. And when they said forever, they meant forever. Forever. It was an eternal promise that probably a temporal mind couldn't even wrap their thoughts around. And right here in this unsuspecting story of this little foreign woman who's trusted God, suddenly eternity just entered the storyline. This is how heavy the story of Ruth is and how beautiful. It's not just that they get a king, which they do in David, but they get a king, which we do in Jesus. Fifthly and lastly, fifthly and lastly, the king is the redeemer. I should have probably capitalized that T, like definite article, definite article, definite article. Big story. If Boaz, and, and he does, if Boaz tells us the story of a redeemer, his lineage gives us the story of the redeemer. If Boaz could, could save, the lives of a couple women, Jesus is the Savior of the world. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, just stand in that chapter, she, being Mary here, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? The sins. You go back in the story, these women say, these people, these neighbors say, oh man, God has given y'all a child, and this, and this child is, is, going to, is going to be your redeemer. This child is going to save your lives. It's going to give Elimelech a heritage. You'll keep his land. You'll have someone to care for you in your old age. Everything's going to work out with this boy. Everything's going to work out with the son of man. And he's not just coming to get the land back. He's not coming to get a lady. He's coming to build a lady. One living stone at a time. And he's going to stick with her until she's so beautiful 
that she's the proper gift for him. I won't even go over my whole list, but I made a list. It's a, it takes up a, well, it is large print because that's just where it is these days. It takes up a whole sheet of paper. Let me, let me go through just a few of these cool things. I want you guys to go search out some for yourself. In Boaz's case, the kinsman redeemer had to be a family member. Well, it was. He was a, a cousin or something of Elimelech. How then does Jesus, the Redeemer, become our family member? He adds humanity to his deity without taking away from his deity. So he can be a near kinsman to us. In Boaz's case, he had the duty of buying the family members out of debt or slavery, whatever their case was. In this case, they were, they were in widowhood and economic loss. He takes the responsibility. What does Jesus do? He buys us out of the slavery to sin and the slavishness to Satan. In Boaz's case, the kinsman redeemer had the duty to buy back the land that had been forfeited for whatever reason. What does Jesus do? He redeems us from our debt to sin and Satan. We've been sold over to Satan, and he buys us out. In Boaz's case, the kinsman redeemer was not motivated by self-interest. Love had gotten a hold of him. In Jesus' case, the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He even told us, he says, no longer do I call you servants. I call you what? Friend. Greater love has no man than what? Lay down his life for his friend. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He had to have a plan. He had to have a plan to win Ruth to himself and make it right. And I'm telling you, that whole story with the sandal just seems nuts to me still. But I took some time this week studying a lot of other oath-making cultures, and there's some really nutty ones. The Romans used to take a special stone and strike a pig with it. Sign their name. Yeah, like that means something. Yeah, sign your name. What does that mean? When we were kids, if it got real serious, you'd spit in your palm. If it wasn't real serious, you could pinky, you could pinky swear, or you could just shake hands. Uh, if it got real serious, saliva was involved. It's a crazy thing. Do you know how foolish the cross looks to people who aren't in, in on the deal and how wonderful it looks and sensible it looks to people who are in on it? A couple more. Boaz took Ruth as his bride. <laughs> Jesus takes the church as his bride. Second bonus sermon. Don't ever run down to church. You'll answer to Jesus for that. It's his lady. You can, you can ask questions, but ultimately the true church is the bride of Christ, and we should be careful. One more. Boaz is a kinsman and redeemer to Ruth. He, he basically provides to her a beautiful future. Do you guys ever stop and think about the beautiful future that Christ has promised us? Do you, do you ever ponder that? The thing that always gets me is how John the Revelator describes heaven. He doesn't even know what to say. Every five words is like. It was like this and like that. He, he can't put into human terms an otherworldly thing. And, and, you know, sometimes I intentionally read it with that old 80s valley girl voice. It's like gold, like made out of like glass. It's like carnelian, except it doesn't look anything like carnelian. Like, you know, 
He can't describe it. You, have you ever thought about, have you ever thought about what it would be like to have all your sorrow gone? Have, have you ever thought about what it'll be like to have all your shame subtracted? Have you ever thought about what it'll be like to never have guilt again? Have you ever thought about what it'll be like to see God? That's one of the ones that get me. I, I'll try to think about it sometimes. What's it going to be like to see God? Oh, Moses, oh, Moses was in the edge of his glory, and it literally made him glow. God even tells us, it wouldn't be good if y'all got real close to me. You'd probably blow up. But we're going to get a new body. <laughs> and we're going to see God. On and on and on. You look at this story, and what it does is it teaches us to recognize the good work of Jesus in our lives. The good work of Jesus. In it, too, you see the blessing, what I call ancillary blessings. Naomi gets caught up in this. And the grace that God has pointed at Israel lands on Naomi. Let me close with three quick thoughts that I pray encourages your faith. When I read something like this, I say there's no way that man could concoct a story that needed so many details and all of them come to bear. When you sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, this coming December, remember you're singing it. Because God drew the story back to the town, and he made it the center point of building his garden where the root of Jesse would spring up. Just think, if this family was supposed to be involved, they left. What's God do? God brings them back with green. God brings them back in with redemption. And God builds this little garden, and we get Obed, and we get Jesse. And even when Jesse is ignoring his own son, God isn't ignoring his own son. Go get that other one you got. Oh, that old ruddy thing. And so when those wise men who we often celebrate come through Jerusalem and they say, hey, is there, a, is there some, some place where a king's supposed to be born? They, they go right into, into the Bible. They go into the scrolls. They find Micah and they, and they pull it out and he says, yep, in Bethlehem. And here's where the little garden was built. That's why it's 66 books of the Bible, because God knew that if he just gave the story to one person, they said, that guy made that up. But when you put all the details spread across so many improbable stories, it becomes an apologetic. It helps us believe, because we say, only God could bring all that together. No man could bring all So suddenly, the story of Ruth helps me believe with more confidence. Secondly, secondly, it helps me see that what is prophetic in the future is more believable because of what has prophetically come true in the past. What God said he was going to do, he just flat out did it. And if you find somebody in your life that's trustworthy and they tell you something's going to happen, you tend to trust them because they've proven to be trustworthy. God's just trustworthy. He keeps his word. Now, if I ever tell y'all, hey, Bubba, watch this, grab your camera. But in general, I don't know much about anything, and I'm wrong a lot. Trusting me is usually pretty small. <laughs> Ask me some small things, I'm trustworthy. Ask me big things, I'm going to fail you. I don't know. I just don't know. But God says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will spread the story across hundreds of years, 
dozens of families, thousands of lives, in incredible circumstances, and I'll bring it together in a way that makes total sense. And everywhere along the way, every time something comes to pass, it'll give you more confidence in what I've said will come to pass. And now we're sitting here, not with blind faith, with intellectual faith. And we're saying, yeah, God, I believe more of this is coming. Lastly, lastly, the most important part in this whole story is that you see the fingerprint of God in the life of Ruth and Boaz so you can recognize what a healthy church, how she responds to a, a loving redeemer. That's what you see, how a healthy church responds to a loving redeemer. How does she do it? She trusts that on the merit of what he has done, he can be trusted for what he will do. That doesn't mean everything will go smooth. Ask Israel about that. Israel upset God a few times, and God said, I can't deal with y'all right now. But out of those times of Israel being chastened, you see God's love even more. Let me give you one example. One example, Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 8. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For your maker is your what, church? Husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your what? So who's your redeemer? And he's also your husband. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Naomi could have well written those words instead of Isaiah. She could say, man, I know what that feels like. We left the land of praise, and it seemed like we were cut off from God. But it wasn't because our disposition changed. It was because God is faithful. And he won't stay angry forever. He will come and get his girl. Why am I so encouraged by the book of Ruth? Because I just see myself as somebody who messed everything up. And God came and got me anyway. He loved me with an everlasting love. He didn't depend on our relationship to be in my hands. <laughs> I mean, I messed everything up. <laughs> but he searched me out and sought me out and brought me in. And I feel, I feel like Ruth. I do. In the privileged side of things, where, where God has set his seal over me and said, I'm going to make you mine, and I'm going to do it through this strange method, and, and you can count on it forever. You're mine, you're with me, and everybody's going to witness it, and, and it's going to be great. And something's going to happen in your life. You're going to bear fruit, and it's going to bring me glory, and it's going to be good for you. I don't expect Tim Bowes to, to be the line of King David. I don't, but I expect me to be joined with the family of King David and have the destiny of King David. And suddenly, I'm just another foreign orphan boy brought into the family of God. And I see his hand all over this. Brothers and sisters, do you see your Redeemer? Do you see his tender care for you? Have you experienced those quiet moments in your life? I have. Where it seemed like God has forgotten you. I stand in his promise that though he does sometimes seem to desert us, 
because of his everlasting love, he's going to come back. And then when, even when we're the ones who's messing up, he's going to come back. And if you want a picture of God as a husband, go, go read the book of Hosea. That one will rock your world. Do you see God's tender care of you? Do you see his desire to give you tender care? Or maybe, maybe, maybe you're still in Moab. And God's calling you to come. To come and believe on the Lord Jesus. To place yourself at his feet, much like Ruth did with Boaz. Just place yourself at his feet and say, would you be my redeemer? I'll tell you already, his answer is yes. He's already said yes. He said it on the cross. The offer is wide open. He's, he's, he's already willing to bless those who come. The Bible says if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Christ was raised from the dead, we shall be saved. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the destiny of hell. Saved from the rule of Satan. It's a whole lot of things to be saved from and to. Saved from guilt. Saved from shame. The Bible tells us that if we believe on that name of Jesus, that he is our redeemer, and that if we receive him, we'll be adopted into the family of God. And just like Boaz goes to the gate and says, I want this done legally, the way we get this done legally is to believe on Jesus, and he's done all the work. He's done all the work. He's done the work. Do you know him today? How's your relationship? You guys are part of our local church. You know this altar is serious. It's a place to come and pray. When's the last time, when's the last time you just put yourself at Jesus' feet? When's the last time you just humbled yourself in gratitude? When's the last time you brought your problems to him and just spelled them out? I mean, he knows them, but have you, like, brought them to him? When's the last time, you know, if, if God's already given us his son, church, what's he going to withhold from us? Nothing. When's the last time you just come to him? Or maybe tonight's the first time you ever come to him. You say, yes, yes, I believe. I want to be like Ruth, and I want to put myself at the feet of Jesus, and I believe that he is able and willing to redeem. This time of response, you know, y'all are not here for it. It's here for you. It's, it's a blessing for you to experience. I invite you to come. God, thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you for the story. More than anything, thank you that it helps me see Jesus more clearly. It helps me see my need more clearly, and it helps me see how you are willing to respond in my brokenness. Father, I pray for all the souls in this room experiencing this moment together. I pray, Father, that you encourage challenge, call, that you speak to each individual just as they need to be spoken to, that you comfort them so that they can become comforters to others. Now, God, as, as we have heard a lot, help us respond to you. In Jesus, I pray. Amen.